is this push for a very restrictive immigration policy and a demonization of immigrants. Is that something new? Was it unique to our era or was it something that had a much longer history? Sadly, what I found is that all of the immigration laws that the U.S. has put in place have been founded on this idea of being kind of a proxy for racial exclusion. Coming up on The Janice Adams Show, staring down the racist legacy of immigration policy with my guest, Reese Jones, author of the book White Borders, The History of Race and Immigration in the U.S. from Chinese Exclusion to the Border Wall. Hi, I'm Janice Adams. Welcome to the show. Say the word history, we think of the past. In fact, history is about the present and the future. It's about what we value from the past that we choose to remember in the present and how that decision shapes the future. Say the word immigration. In America, past and present, we think a nation of immigrants. But that word has come to mean well, we'll talk about that today with our guest, Reese Jones, a 2021 Guggenheim Fellow, political geographer, and chair of the Department of Geography and Environment at the University of Hawaii. He's the author of White Borders, the history of race and immigration in the United States from Chinese exclusion to the border wall. Reese Jones, welcome. Hi, Janice. Thanks for having me on. You close the book with these lines and a charge. Almost 250 years after Thomas Jefferson wrote that all men are created equal, the country is still trying to live up to that ideal, even though Jefferson himself failed. Just as the founding documents of the United States were were not true when they were written, Emma Lazarus's poem about welcoming immigrants to the United States was not true when it was added to the base of the Statue of Liberty in 1903. It is still not true today, but it could be. The first step toward that aspiration is to recognize that because immigration restrictions are a tool of white supremacy, then free movement must be the position of anyone opposed to it. Why did you write that? I think it's something that a lot of people don't associate with white supremacy. When people are talking about the white foundations of the country or white supremacist movements in the United States, immigration isn't necessarily the first thing that comes to a lot of people's minds. Um, And so what I was trying to do in this book is to demonstrate the role that immigration restrictions have played in protecting this fantasy of a white country in the United States. Um, And to emphasize that from the beginning, the first immigration rules were put in place on racial terms in order to protect a white idea of the country. And if we look at each of the immigration laws that have passed that, they've continued to do that and continue to serve that role. Um, and so I end the book with, with that provocation to, um, to say, well, if immigration laws have been enacted to protect white supremacy, then maybe those of us who are trying to resist that and to question that should question the idea of immigration restrictions. You say from the first immigration laws, where do they actually begin? This is something that is a surprise, I think, to a lot of people. They they assume that the United States has always had immigration laws, Um, but that's not true. From the founding of the country um, through the 1870s, there were not any federal immigration rules. Um, There were a few states that put in place their own rules about who could enter the country, but the Supreme Court ruled twice in 1849 and again in 1875 um, that those state-level immigration restrictions were unconstitutional. So the first federal restrictions on immigration weren't put in place until 1875 with the Page Act. 
um, and then in 1882 with the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, and both of those laws were fundamentally about preventing the first group of non-white immigrants who were coming freely to the country from being able to do so. As Chinese people started to arrive um, in the aftermath of the gold rush and statehood for California and the West Coast states, um, as soon as those numbers started to be large enough, um, the white population of the U.S. put in place these laws to prevent that immigration. Let's start back a bit. Why did you write the book? Because you'd already written a book about immigration. So why did you write this book about it? And how did you know we would need it so desperately now? <laughs> Yeah, this this is actually my third book. My my first book looked at border walls, and that came out in 2012. Um, but then my second book um, is called Violent Borders, and that came out in October 2016. So just before the the Trump election um, in November of that year. Um, and so what that book looked at was to think about why borders have become such violent places, why we see walls going up around the world, why we see this focus on immigration restrictions, and then the impact that has on migrants' lives, right? And, it, and it, it's resulted in a lot of deaths at borders. Um, but what I didn't think about in that book when I was talking about the ways that borders protect privileges um, is I hadn't used the lens of race specifically to think about the role of exclusion that borders and restrictions were playing. Um, but as I watched the Trump campaign, where he focused his entire campaign on, first of all, a border wall, which is something I had previously written an entire book about, um, and then specifically on this idea that immigrants were this fundamental threat to the country um, and using the these really white supremacist tropes about the dangers that immigration posed, um, I realized I needed to go back and look at this in more depth. And so I started to go back and read about these earlier immigration laws and to really understand, is this Trump, and now it's become the, the whole Republican Party's push for um, a very restrictive immigration policy um, and a demonization of immigrants to the country, is that something new? Was it unique to our era, or it was, was it something that had a much longer history? Um, and sadly, what I, what I found is that it has a, a much longer history, that all of the immigration laws that the U.S. has put in place have been founded on this idea of being kind of a, a proxy for racial exclusion. Now, it's interesting that you cited when you were talking about the beginnings of federal immigration law, you cited 1849 and then 1875 and 1849, yes, the gold rush, but 1849 is when enslavement is still an institution. Um, Missouri Compromise has not yet come into place. The Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 coincides then with that. And then 1875, I find interesting that you mentioned that because then 1875 is when Reconstruction is foundering and leading into what becomes a legalized reign of terror called the era of segregation. Are you seeing those two things being more than coincidental? Oh, they are not coincidental. Absolutely not. And, and in the book, I argue quite strongly that the end of slavery and particularly Black citizenship is one of the drivers behind this effort to restrict immigration. Um, so maybe we should just clarify one more thing. So I, I said there were no immigration restrictions to the U.S. until the 1870s. But of course, citizenship was quite closed um, in this period of time. So from the first naturalization law in 1790, um, it said that citizenship was restricted to a free white person. Um, and then after the Civil War, um, through the 13th and 14th Amendment, and then a revision to that law by 1870, there was Black citizenship um, in the U.S. Um, and I think you can see the, the moment that I'm talking about in the book as this white reaction to this change in the power relations, right? Something that I think the white community as a whole in the U.S. had not 
grappled with was this idea of non-white citizenship in the country. It, it wasn't in the, the, you know, the constitution continues slavery. Um, the founding documents like this naturalization law say the country is for a free white person. Um, and so after 1870, that's suddenly up for debate. Um, and so what I argue in the book is that there are three main reactions to that. The first is the, the violence that you were talking about, right? So things like Jim Crow laws, segregation that reinstate this white order um, in practice, even if in law there is equality. Um, a second reaction is an effort to remove non-white people from the United States. Um, there was a group, for example, called the American Colonization Society, um, which began in the 1820s, but continued, I think, to the surprise of many people, it didn't disband until 1964. Um, but its purpose was to remove non-white people from the country um, to protect this idea of a, a white United States, right? And that's the, the movements to Liberia, for example. Um, but the third reaction is the one that the book really is, is focused on, is this realization, and I, I include quite a number of quotes in the book. Um, of politicians articulating this, that, okay, Black citizenship has happened, we have to deal with that, but the last thing that white America should do is allow more non-white people to come, right? And so the justification for these immigration laws in the 1870s is to prevent any future um, racial diversity in the country from, uh, from coming into being. So I think you're exactly right to point to a very tight relationship between the kind of undoing of reconstruction um, and the implementation of these white supremacist laws about immigration. And it's so painfully obvious that we're seeing it once again now with attacks on voting rights, so disfranchisement of people of color again, at the same time as this push for even more vehement, more restrictive, uh, and more violent anti-immigration. You know, I, I want to ask you uh, about that, though. It's just, I mean, as a Black person, I look at it and I say, oh, come on, people. You know, I mean, it is so obvious that you have a problem um, you've left an all-white continent, gone every place in the world to take whiteness, which wasn't called whiteness at the time, but became whiteness, to continents where you did not belong. You've then completely tried to take over everything on those continents, including the lives of those people. And now that you've done that, here you are saying, we don't want anybody other than white people when you're in the homeland of someone who's definitely not white. So, you know, I mean, at what point do we talk about the pathology and the guilt? Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, if you look at the, the, period in the 1870s when some of these first immigration laws were put in place, um, it's it's quite shocking to me to read some of the debates in the U.S. Senate because they were so explicit about these things that today we might not say so explicitly. Um, there was a senator from, uh, from Oregon, for example, Lafayette Grover was his name, and in his speech in support of the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, he makes the argument that his white ancestors had with fire and fury, I think are the phrase that he used, um, driven out the Aborigines of America. And so that the very last thing his ancestors would want him to do would be to allow Chinese immigrants to come in to what this, this in his version, was a, a white paradise that they had, had created. Um, and we see that same sort of language, I think, connecting each of these eras that we um, encounter this anti-immigrant rhetoric. Um, um, another period that, that we talk about in the book, um, but in the 1920s, it's the same sort of language, right? About the, in, in that period, there's a eugenics idea, um, this notion that, that white people, and particularly Northern European white people, have superior genes, and that it would be race suicide to allow in more immigrants and dilute that whiteness that had been created. Um, so I, I think you're right. I think it's this continuous reaction to any threats to that white dominance that has been created in those periods. Um, and we, of course, see it again today, right? Because we um, we saw the really the growth 
in diversity in the United States over the last few decades. Um, we can talk about the 1965 Immigration Act, which, although it was intended to maintain a white order in the country, it ended up by accident, in a way, creating a much more diverse immigration flow to the country. Um, and ever since then, there's been this white supremacist reaction to that and an effort to kind of reel that back in. Um, and I think you can see the, the vehemence of it today um, as a reaction to that, to a more diverse country, but also to a country where that white privilege is being questioned and is being up for doubt. Um, and you see, I think, a multi-pronged effort to reinforce that white order, whether it's through banning critical race theory in the U.S., whether it's expanding money for police forces, which operate to protect that white order, um, and whether it's for this effort to demonize all immigrants to the country and focus on building border walls and, and expanding security at the border as the primary thing that one of the political parties in the country is arguing. I was going to ask you in a very cheeky way, but now you've mentioned it. Is this book critical race theory? Someone who's a critic of critical race theory would certainly categorize it as such. Um, That's what I'm asking. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think it would be very easy to say that, right? Because, you know, critical race theory has just become kind of a, a boogeyman idea for those on the right for anything that questions the 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 kind of traditional history of the United States of this version of a, a free country where it's the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, and where the founders had this ideal of an all-inclusive society. And so anyone who tells a different history to that, who questions that dominant white narrative, I don't think it's really the dominant narrative in the country anymore. I think that a lot of people see a lot of different ways um, that white supremacy has operated in the country. But I think from that perspective from a critic of critical race theory, they would certainly think of this as critical race theory. Yeah, because so often we're talking about the the dominant narrative, the traditional American history. But basically that history is fraught with lies. And even the parts that are true are told devoid of the repercussions of so-called greatness. So critical race theory, simply meaning that you look at a body of law and you see how race has impacted that body of law. You, but now, as you say, it's the boogeyman. If you talk about the impact of race on immigration, you're talking critical race theory in, in that sense. I'm looking over your shoulder and I see a book called Nobody is Protected that you wrote. Tell us about that book. Yeah, so Nobody is Protected is my next book. Ah, <laughs> um, so we get a preview. Sure, yeah, we can do, <laughs> we can do a preview of that one. Um, I wrote it jointly with, with the book we were talking about today with White Borders, um, but eventually decided that they were really two separate books. So um, what, what Nobody is Protected does is looks at um, the Border Patrol um, and thinks about how the Border Patrol operates inside the United States. And so I'm particularly interested in the racial profiling that the Border Patrol does. Um, in the 1970s, the Supreme Court considered whether the Border Patrol could legally use racial profiling in their work, um, and they decided that they could. Um, in, a, in a 1975 Supreme Court decision. Um, so that book looks at this kind of interior policing that's done by the Border Patrol and the impact that that has on people's lives. Um, and the argument of it is that the Border Patrol continues to expand further and further into the interior of the United States, claiming, for example, your, your listeners might recall in, in the summer of uh, 2020, when there were racial justice protests um, across the United States in Portland, Oregon, there were these incidents of federal agents grabbing people and throwing them into unmarked vans and driving off with them. Um, that was the Border Patrol that was doing that. Um, and so in the book, I talk about why they were there, what that has anything to do with immigration, um, and then uh, what the implications are of this growing um, police force that's operating in large sections of the United States. Well, since you've raised it, why was it there and why were they authorized to do that? Yeah, so the Border Patrol is authorized to 
to operate with special rules, with the racial profiling and with lower standards of evidence um, within 100 miles of borders and coastlines. Um, and so that's an area that includes two thirds of the US population. Um, probably the majority of your listeners today are in that border zone as it is. But in that Portland incident, um, they were using a whole separate set of rules after the September 11th attacks in the authorization of the Department of Homeland Security. There was a def- different um, category that allowed for the protection of federal buildings, um, but it's written really broadly um, to where it makes it seem like it can almost be a federal police force. They can do investigations on any federal crimes um, anywhere in the United States. And so traditionally, the U.S. has not had a national police force, but the Border Patrol is trying to reposition itself as that agency that is that is involved in that policing in the everyday life of Americans. And it's pernicious. They're, for example, the Border Patrol, they don't really, they have to have what are called articulable facts to stop a vehicle in the United States, whereas regular police need probable cause, right? They need a, a clear reason for stopping a vehicle to ask the driver questions, whereas the Border Patrol doesn't need that. They just need to be able to articulate a, a fact of why they had some sort of suspicion that there might be an immigrant in a car. Does it have to be a fact or just an assertion? <laughs> so the they call it manufactured suspicion because they can really use a whole wide range of things. In that same um, 1975 Supreme Court case, um, Brignone Ponce versus United States, they listed 14 different facts that would be evidence. One of those, for example, was driving on a road near the border. Ipso facto, if you are in the border zone, that 100 miles of the border, you're, you're near the border, right? So that one alone is enough. But other ones were like, an overloaded car, an empty car, not looking at the Border Patrol agent, looking too much at the Border Patrol agent. And that's also the one that mentions the appearance of the drivers, right? So it it mentions specifically Mexican haircuts, Mexican modes of dress, um, and the Border Patrol has interpreted that quite broadly to mean foreign modes of dress, right, as being evidence that they can pull someone over. Um, So that's what I argue in the book, is that it's the title of the book actually comes from Thurgood Marshall, um, who, it, upon hearing about these regulations um, and pressing the government lawyers about the extent of this, he concluded nobody is protected. Um, and that's the title of the book. When we come back, more with our guest, Reese Jones, after the break. here on the Janice Adams Show with our guest today, Reese Jones, a 2021 Guggenheim Fellow, political geographer, and chair of the Department of Geography and Environment at the University of Hawaii. He's the author of White Borders, the history of race and immigration in the United States from Chinese exclusion to the border wall. Reese, right before the break, we were talking about this kind of insidious power of Border Patrol under the guise of protecting those of us in the country. But as a Black person, I know I have had several problems coming in and out through customs. And one that one incident that's coming to mind is when I flew from Trinidad, where I'd been on location uh, working. So I had my sound equipment and everything else with me. And as I came through, the first thing they did was to note my coat, my outer coat. They commented literally on the fact that they thought it was expensive. That was the first thing. The second thing they noted was my equipment, my sound equipment. And they, the, the third thing they mentioned was that I was not dressed like a person who was coming from the Caribbean, meaning I was dressed for work as opposed to being dressed to be on the beach. But those three things in their mind combined with the fact that I was an African-American woman with an American passport combined for them to pull me aside, go through a pat down, go through all sorts of madness. And when I got where I was going, which was to California, and because I was going to California, I had folded my coat into the box with all my equipment so that it would arrive together. And when I got to California, I had neither my coat nor my equipment which were never again to be found. 
Okay. The question I have is what you were talking about with Border Patrol, to what extent did it cover that experience? To what extent did the mindset of it intrude to create that situation? I think it absolutely did. And what you're describing is something that I think people of color experience every day when they interact with Customs and Border Protection. Let me just clarify terms a little bit. Um, So the U.S. has Customs and Border Protection, which has three different units within it. The Border Patrol, um, they wear green uniforms. They operate in between crossing points. So um, and 100 miles deep into the United States around coastlines and um, borderlines. Um, Then there is Office of Field Operations. They wear blue uniforms, um, and they're the ones at the checkpoints. So if you were to cross by land from Mexico, but also at the airports, you're you're interacting with Office of Field Operations. Um, And then they have a third unit. They wear brown uniforms um, that are the um, air and marine operations that operate like the drones and airplanes that monitor the skies. They have no geographical limits, so they can operate anywhere in the U.S. Um, And the... It's been shown that they lend out those drones to police forces, for example, during George Floyd protests, um, border patrol or border customs and border protection drones were flying over cities like Minneapolis, for example. Um, But to get back to your your incident, um, I think that in your case, they are absolutely racially profiling you because you're coming from the Caribbean and they are going to think that you are possibly a drug mule. Right. So they're looking for people who don't fit the pattern for them of what someone coming back from the Caribbean should look like. Um, and so something like an expensive jacket on a person of color, they're immediately going to think, oh, they have money from um, from smuggling drugs across the border, right? Bringing heroin, bringing other things um, often inside the person's body. Um, and so that's absolutely an example of racial profiling. Sadly, though, the Supreme Court ruled, as I was saying before, in, in 1975, that the, the Customs and Border Protection at the time, the Border Patrol, um, could use racial profiling in their work. And that was reviewed in uh, 2014 by the Obama administration. Eric Holder was the attorney general at the time, and they banned racial profiling for most federal agents, um, but there is still an exception for immigration agents. So Border Patrol, Office of Field Operations are allowed explicitly by federal policy to use racial profiling in their work. So using the identity of the person that they're interacting with to decide whether that alone is enough um, evidence in order to stop them, to talk to them in more depth. Um, People who've looked at this same issue at, for example, Border Patrol checkpoints um, in the Southern United States. Um, This is a a whole other issue that I talk about in my book, Nobody is Protected. Um, But the Border Patrol operates over 100 interior checkpoints within 100 miles of the border. So we're not talking about at the Mexican border at an airport. Instead, we're talking about it at an American, on an American highway in between two American cities. Um, they can set up checkpoints and stop every single vehicle and ask about the citizenship of the people inside. Um, so activists have monitored these checkpoints and they found that often white drivers are stopped at a frequency 20 times less than people of color at these checkpoints. So um, if you are driving while Mexican, as as, um, critics would call the the incidents in these border spaces, you are 20 times more likely to be stopped and interrogated at these border patrol checkpoints, whereas people with white skin pull up often don't even have to stop and are just waved through um, at these these checkpoints. So um, it's a pernicious problem that is um, well-documented for the border patrol, but sadly is legal, is, um, is approved for the border patrol under the current regulations. Once again, the whole issue of what it means to be legal. We, we have this thing in our heads that says when something is legal, it's right, but legal and right do not necessarily coincide. How did you get involved in this work? What made, what sparked you to say, this is something that's, you know, 
on my mind enough to devote this amount of my lifetime to working on the subject. Yeah, I've been interested in borders for a number of years. Um, I was actually a Peace Corps volunteer in Bangladesh, and I became really interested in the border between India and Bangladesh. And so I, I went back to graduate school to study that border. And while I was doing that research, India was building a border wall on that border. Um, and at the same time, the U.S. was building a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, we, we forget that during the Bush administration, they authorized 700 miles of wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. So the Trump stuff is kind of the second round of border fencing and walling that's happened down there. Israel was doing the same thing. And so I just became really interested in why were all these countries who are supposedly democracies um, building these border walls? Um, and so that kind of sparked my interest in this topic. And then it's kind of taken off from there to my second book to look at migrant deaths, why so many people are dying at these borders. Um, this third book, White Borders, to look at the relationship between racial exclusion and borders. Um, and then the fourth one, Nobody is Protected, looking specifically at the Border Patrol as, as really a racial police force. Um, maybe we could just talk a little bit more about that because it relates back also to the White Borders that we were discussing before. Because so when was the Border Patrol even set up? Well, the United States did not have a Border Patrol until 1924. Um, and the reason for that is there were not strict rules about who could enter the country until 1924. And um, so although the first immigration laws were put in place in the 1870s and targeting the Chinese, the first comprehensive rules about who could enter the country were those 1924 National Origins Acts, which um, created limits on immigration from virtually everywhere in the world, um, except for Western Europe. Um, and then the Border Patrol was established two days after that went into effect in order to enforce those racial rules about who could enter. So the first Border Patrol agent's job was to patrol in the border areas, look for people of color, and turn them back. Um, and that was the, the fundamental purpose that it was founded on. Um, and the Border Patrol has continued to do that in every decade since then um, as being a force that protects the white borders of the United States. You mentioned the year 1924, and that has other implications that you write about in the book. Could you read that section for us? This is the beginning of one of the chapters um, in kind of the aftermath of the 1924 Immigration Act. So on April 20th, 1924, as the U.S. Congress debated the Johnson-Reed Immigration Act, Adolf Hitler celebrated his 35th birthday in a cell in Landsberg prison in Germany. After his discharge from the German army in 1920, Hitler began to develop his fascist political views and hone his speaking skills at beer halls in Bavaria. He felt the sting from what he saw as Germany's humiliating and unwarranted defeat in World War I. And in his speeches, he explained away Germany's economic troubles by scapegoating immigrants and Jews. By 1923, he was the leader of the National Socialist Party, and he looked to Benito Mussolini's rise in Italy as a model for how his Nazi party could grab power in Germany. On November 8, 1923, Hitler led an attempted coup in what became known as the Beer Hall Push. He barged into a Bavarian government meeting with his stormtroopers in tow. After a few hours of uncertainty, the coup failed. Hitler was arrested for high treason on November 11th and sentenced to five years in prison on April 1, 1924. From his prison cell, Hitler followed the debates around the Johnson-Reed Immigration Act in the U.S., and he found a lot to like. He used his time in prison to dictate Mein Kampf, which means My Struggle, which was published in two volumes in 1925 and 1926, after he was pardoned and released from prison. First volume, entitled A Reckoning, was autobiographical and traced his life in concert with the plight of Germany in World War I. The second volume, entitled The National Socialist Movement, focused on his ultra-nationalist vision for Germany, in which immigrants and Jews were singled out as the cause of all of Germany's problems. Hitler criticized birthright citizenship, and particularly Germany's willingness to naturalize people born elsewhere, whom he referred to as a poison in the body of the nation. Hitler, however, saw reason for hope in the example of America. In Mein Kampf, he wrote, there is today one state in which at least weak beginnings towards a better conception are noticeable. Of course, it is not our model German Republic, but the American Union, in which an effort is made to consult reason, at least partially. By refusing immigration on principle to elements in poor health, by simply excluding certain races from naturalization, it professes in slow beginnings a view which is peculiar to the folkish state concept. And of course, we know that he went on from there because uh, to perfect his ideas, 
based on his appreciation of American segregation, which he then took inspiration from that, and 1924 being a, a period of great in, intense racism and lynchings and violence and uh, the aftermath of the 1919 through 1921 assaults, Red Summer of 1919, and he takes that and turns it into his final solution. And he credits the United States with the inspiration for that. So there there are repercussions from this that I, I'm even hearing when you speak about it on another level, because of course, right now, we have people who, we have black and brown people who have applied for, during the Trump administration in particular, who applied for passport renewals, whose passport renewals were questioned as to whether or not they should be granted citizenship, even though they were born in the United States or whatever, and whether or not their citizenship was valid or not to, to recertify things like passports and other government documents. So we are still seeing this thing that America just does not want to seem to let go of. You mentioned that you came to this intrigue with borders and the idea of borders when you were a student. But where is your family from? How did how did your family come from where to the United States and when? Yeah, so I grew up in Virginia um, and most of my ancestors were living in North Carolina and Georgia, so mostly in the South. Um, most of my ancestors had been in the U.S. for quite a number of years, so I think that you could trace them back to the early 1700s, late 1600s in the United States. So we've been in the U.S. for, for long periods of time. So, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm from the South. And where did they come from? Where did they immigrate from? Um, mostly from England and Scotland. Um, so my middle name is, is Markham, um, which actually means borderlander, um, which refers to people who live at the, the border between uh, England and, and Wales, actually. So, um, yeah, so I guess, I guess it was in the blood. Destiny. (laughs) You know, back back to your book. I found it intriguing that you open the book with a scene from the 2017 Unite the Right rally. Would you read that section then of the book that applies to that moment that we were just listening to? I mean, they're yelling things like blood and soil, white lives matter, hail Trump. And of course, you will not replace us. You will not replace us. You will not replace us. With torches in hand and rage in their voices, hundreds of white men marched along tree-lined red brick sidewalks through the stately grounds of the University of Virginia on the evening of August 11th, 2017. Their destination was the towering rotunda at the center of campus where Richard Spencer, a leader of the white nationalist movement and one of the organizers of the event was planning to give an impromptu speech. Dressed in matching uniforms of khaki pants, tucked in polo shirts and fashy haircuts, shaved tight on the sides and slicked across the top in the Hitler youth style, the white nationalists belted out chants in aggressive, forceful cadence. One people, one nation, end immigration. One people, one nation, end immigration. Even more ominously, they sung Blood and Soil like an anthem, the English translation of the Nazi slogan, Blut and Boden. As they neared the iconic dome of the rotunda, Thomas Jefferson's architectural masterpiece in a world heritage site, The evocation of you will not replace us morphed into Jews will not replace us. After passing through the Greek columns of the rotunda, the white marchers streamed down the north steps into the red flick plaza below, itching for a fight. They found one in the form of a few dozen counter-protesters encircling the statue of Thomas Jefferson at the center of the plaza, with arms interlocked as if to protect a fragile idea. The counter-protesters were mostly young, mostly women, along with a few black men. They chanted, No Nazis, no KKK, no fascist USA. 
but their small numbers in the vast space of the rotunda dissipated their voices, making their grip on Jefferson's legacy seem plaintive and tenuous. They eyed the growing mass of white nationalists warily as more and more hyped up men spilled into the plaza. The location of the standoff could not have been more appropriate as Thomas Jefferson stood aloof above two different visions for the future of America, both of which Jefferson himself had set in motion, collided at his feet. I find that scene so interesting because on top of those slogans that they were chanting straight out of the Nazi playbook, which which was inspired by the U.S. anti-immigration playbook, one of the slogans was, Russia is our friend. When we come back, more on the show with Reese Jones after the break. here on the Janice Adams Show, and my guest today is Reese Jones. His new book is called White Borders, The History of Race and Immigration in the United States from Chinese Exclusion to the Border Wall. Reese, right before the break, you were reading from the prologue to the book and the scene where the Charlottesville Unite the Right demonstrated when they were chanting these slogans that were straight out of the Nazi playbook, you know, you will not replace us, then Jews will not replace us, and then the South will rise again. But one that we don't often hear that they were chanting was, Russia is our friend. Have they disavowed Russia is our friend in any way? I think it's something that's divided the right. You see the far right, um, the people who are part of this white nationalist movement still very much um, see Russia as their friend um, and see Putin as the vision of the strongman authoritarian leader that they want, one that doesn't um, accept diversity in the country, that uses violence to enforce um, a particular vision of what the state should be. Um, And so they see that as a model for what they would like to have in the United States. Um, I think it, though, has put a lot of pressure on uh, on more, quote unquote, mainstream Republicans who had been, um, you know, drifting towards these white nationalist positions and and expressing them in more and more explicit tones, um, along with this pro-Putin rhetoric and pro-Russia rhetoric, um, are, are starting to have to kind of step away from that. And I think that one of the, the things also, if we can shift gears slightly, the events in Ukraine have demonstrated, um, it's brought to light, I think, as well, you could say the white borders of Europe, too, because um, for over a decade, there have been refugees from Syria, from um, places like Eritrea or Ethiopia, trying to reach um, um, Libya, um, Sudan, trying to reach Europe um, and being pushed back in very violent ways um, and having their movements drastically restricted by the European Union um, and uh, an unwillingness to really even consider the asylum applications of many of these people, um, putting up walls to prevent those movements. Um, by contrast, when Ukraine has had a, a violent event in their country and people have rightly fled that country for safety, um, Europe has welcomed them with open arms. I mean, in the last week and a half, at at the point of recording, over 2 million people have crossed into EU countries from Ukraine in just a brief period of time um, and have been welcomed and have been provided support. And to me, that's an illustration of this racialized nature of borders, right? That borders are open for some, but not for all. With all of this, there is always the question, where do we go from here? And beyond the idea that of hope, you know, to some extent, I'm tired of hope because it gets to be a way of ignoring responsibility. You just get to hope for something. But where are we headed? What are people doing that is pushing back against the pushback of anti-immigration and its connection to the doctrine of white supremacy. Yeah, well, I think the first thing we should remember is that although we've seen a lot of immigration over the last few years at the U.S.-Mexico border, at the borders of the EU, um, 
The other crisis that's happening right now is, of course, the climate crisis. Um, and the new UN report suggests that 100 million people, hundreds of millions of people are going to be displaced by climate change in the coming decades. So the amount of people we see arriving at borders today are going to be dwarfed by the number of people arriving in the future. Um, so we have a choice of what we want to do about that. Do we want to live in a world where we build walls, where we put border agents there, where we use violence to prevent people from moving to one place or another? Or do we want to start now thinking about systems to integrate people who arrive, to bring them into um, the receiving countries? The people are going to come either way. The question is whether we want to spend billions and billions of dollars on more violence at the border or billions and billions of dollars helping people to make these transitions into um, Europe, the United States, other wealthy countries around the world. Um, and I would suggest that the, the morally right thing to do is to create mechanisms for people to be able to move freely. Um, it's, it's just wrong, I think, um, that some people claim the right to allow other people to move across the face of the earth. Instead, I would argue that that is a fundamental human right to move freely and that we should protect that um, for people globally. Um, the flip side of that is it's not only the morally right thing to do, it's also the economically right thing to do. Um, scholars who've studied um, immigration find uniformly that more immigration is beneficial to the countries receiving the people who arrive. Um, studies of immigrants to the United States have found that on average, each immigrant creates 1.2 additional jobs in addition to the one they're doing. Um, and if you think about it, it makes sense, right? They People who arrive, they take a taxi to work, they ride the bus, they shop in the supermarket, they rent an apartment. All of those things can contribute to the communities that they're arriving in. Um, so what I would suggest is that going forward, we should change the way that we think about immigration. Instead of these restrictions on movement, which have been a tool of white supremacy, we need to facilitate movement and think about ways to allow for these mass movements of people that are going to happen in the coming decades to make them smooth, to make them safe, um, to make them humane, and to make them beneficial to people on both ends. As you discuss in the book, essentially whites who were part of this Unite the Right rally and all of that, one of the central tenets was how to get Americans in general on their side. And they sought bringing more working class white people into the voting process so that they could win. But they did that by telling those people that those people, those others, those colored people, Mexicans, and that was the word for everybody. Those Mexicans were taking your job. Supposedly, it was, as you describe, a result of globalization, that many had lost their jobs due to globalization. And so they believed this fallacy because of their lived experience. What lived experience countermands and contradicts that? that can be pointed to so that these people can see something else. Yeah, I think a, a lot of the, the power of Donald Trump's arguments in that 2016 election and continuing with the Republican talking points about immigration today um, is that it's easy to demonize an other, right? To use fear, to use um, this idea of a threat um, in order to rile up someone who feels uncertainty in their life, right? Because we have had um, a number of economic problems in the United States, right? The real wages of the working class have been stagnant for decades, right? And um, while a lot of profits have gone to the wealthy elites, rather than focusing on the corporations or the, the people who are actually reaping the benefits of that particular system, um, the Republican Party has shifted that to say, you know, look at the immigrants. They're the ones that are doing this to you, right? They're the ones that are taking your jobs. Um, and, and it's been effective, right? Because it's a simple narrative, right? Whereas if I were to tell you a much more complicated story about exactly how globalization works and how immigrants bring benefits to the community, and um, it's, it's a harder narrative to sell, right? There's not a single evil that makes that case. And so I think a lot of the troubles with countering the right-wing language about immigration today is that they're talking in simple ideas, 
build the wall, stop immigration, make America great again, right? It's it's one, two, three, and that's that's it, right? Whereas if you're talking about it from my perspective, it's about a much more complicated story about the benefits of immigration. Um, and I think it, it just doesn't land in the same sort of way, even though all of the data is on my side, right? Is, is in support of the arguments that I'm making. Um, I don't have a quick answer to that, right? I mean, uh, um, that's probably why I'm a professor and not a politician. A professor and not a politician. So in these closing moments, teach us one thing that we need to carry with us so that we can just ourselves think about things differently going forward. I hope that your listeners after this conversation will just think about borders and immigration um, with a different sort of eye and not think of them as something that's natural and has always existed, but rather to think of them as a mechanism for protecting privileges. Um, and if you can look at them that way, you start to question, well, whose privileges are they protecting? Um, and for a long time, they've protected the privileges of the wealthy and in the United States, the white population. And so if we want to create a better world where um, those sorts of priorities are not the priorities of the country, um, it means looking to immigration as one way to open up a much more diverse and welcoming country. Reese Jones, thank you so much for being my guest on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. My thanks to Reese Jones and to you for joining us here on The Janice Adams Show. For links to our guest, his books, and this week's podcast, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. In cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole and Patricio Rubio, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved. Mm-hmm.